Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that no matter what happens in our culture, what happens in our lives, no matter what experiences we go through, your word remains the same. Your word is your word, the way that you gave it, moving through human writers to pen down the truth that you wanted to reveal to us. We thank you that we can anchor our souls to it. We thank you that we can always turn to it for its timeless promises and timeless truths. That it will always give us exactly what we need, the power that we need. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As believers, uh, sometimes there's a disconnect between what we know about God's word. We know it's in there. We know what it says. We even have it memorized and all of his promises that he gives all throughout it. But there's often a disconnect between that and allowing those promises to give us the peace and strength that we need. Sometimes our frustrating situation is so loud and it's screaming at us so loudly that we immediately act, react with our flesh. We immediately react with our humanity. And we forget where our power to react the way Jesus would really comes from. These human knee-jerk reactions are not relegated to a certain way of life. No matter what you do, who you are, or what your life is like, there are going to be frustrating situations that cause us to automatically respond in a human and sinful way. But those experiences don't have to end there. That's not the end of the story. They don't have to end there. That doesn't have to be where the period goes. There can be more that comes out of them. There can be more that comes out of those responses. Furthermore, The way the world handles things and processes through things is not at all the same way God is calling us to process through things. It's completely different. His way makes absolutely no sense to the world. And it's the simple faith in the life that he's calling us to and simple obedience to his commands that will work immeasurable spiritual growth in us and use us in incredible ways for his kingdom. In our passage this morning, some fishermen have a pretty frustrating day. But we'll see what the whole point of that frustration was, what comes out of it, and how Jesus turned around that frustration to call four of his disciples to follow him in his mission on earth. Through this, we'll see how God can even redeem when we respond to a frustrating situation with our flesh, with using it for his plan and his growth in us. So the first point that we come to, if you brought your Bible with you, turn to Luke 5. We're going to be in verses 1 through 11. If you didn't, there should be one located in a pew in front of you. Please also turn to Luke 5, 1 through 11. Uh, It's in the New Testament. You start flipping through and you find Matthew. Keep going. Matthew, Mark, Luke. There's where it is. Luke chapter 5. We're going to be in the first verses of Luke chapter 5. The first point of our our, uh, passage today is the request. In Luke chapter 5, verse 1, we read this. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. 
The lake that Jesus is teaching by is, is known by at least three different names in the Gospels. The first is the Sea of Tiberias, as recorded in John chapter 6. The second is the Lake of Gennaraset, what we have recorded for us here. And the third is the name that is the well-known name, and that's the Sea of Galilee. All three are the same body of water, the Sea of Galilee. You'll see here, we see the Sea of Galilee on this map. Uh, if you've never... If you don't really know where these things take place, in many of your Bibles, there's a map that's in the back. You can take a look at that as you read through the Gospels, and that way you can see where these different things are. Here's the Mediterranean Sea over here. That's the, the, the big thing there. This is the Dead Sea down here. Then this is the Jordan River. All the way, this, this skinny thing is the Jordan River. We know the Jordan River through, from a lot of stories from the Old Testament. And then the Jordan River connects to the Sea of Galilee up here. Just to put it in perspective, here's Jerusalem, here's Bethlehem that we know from Christmas, and all the way up here is the Sea of Galilee. More specifically, this is probably the area of the coast of the Sea of Galilee around the town of Bethsaida, right over here. This is probably where it's taken place. Why? Because verse 2 notes that Simon Peter, who would become one of Jesus' disciples by the end of this passage, was from Bethsaida and was cleaning his fishing net on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So this account probably also takes place there. Jesus is teaching some people the word of God when apparently word gets out and the group of people swells into a crowd of people and begins to press in around Jesus, making it difficult for people to hear what he's saying. Not wanting even one person to miss out on his message, Jesus hatches a plan. Verse 2, And he saw two boats lying on the, at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. Because fishermen would drag their nets through the water, they would pick up a lot more than just fish. Uh, so they required cleaning after each catch. These guys may have even been listening to Jesus as he's been uh, teaching as they worked. And all of a sudden, verse 3, and he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. There are several notes to, to make about this verse. The first one is that Jesus knew what he was doing. Not everybody maybe thought that. But Jesus knew what he was doing. Not only would getting out into the water make it so more people would see him, but the shoreline, especially at Bethsaida, uh, speaking from the water, would provide a natural amphitheater, thus making it easier for more people to hear what he's saying. You see how this is the, the geography of the, of the area here? Here's the Sea of Galilee. Here's Bethsaida. Look how it's formed here. That forms a natural amphitheater, so all Jesus' words were bouncing off the hills, and they could hear them better. The second note is that this is not the first time Jesus has met Simon Peter. This is not the first time Jesus had met Simon. We learn from the Gospel of John that Jesus had already met Simon's brother Andrew, after which Andrew went and got Simon and told him that he had find them, found the Messiah. Simon then went with Andrew and Jesus and told Peter. Uh, 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 Jesus told Peter that his name would now be called Peter, Little Rock. Then we find out from the previous chapter in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus went home with Simon Peter after synagogue and healed his mother-in-law. But Simon still hasn't followed Jesus yet fully as his full disciple by the time we get to verse 3. The third note comes out of the second note and that is this. 
Jesus being here with these four fishermen is not a coincidence. It wasn't just that they just happened to be there. They didn't just happen to be fishermen for no reason. We find out later that at least Peter is uneducated. Jesus wanted to show everyone that he chooses his followers not based on their level of education, but for his own reasons. So Jesus asks, asks Simon to stop what he's doing, drag the boat back into the water after he's already put in a full day of work, and sit there while he teaches the crowds on the beach. G, uh, Simon could very easily have said, oh, just hold on a little bit. Maybe in a little bit, Jesus. I'm busy now. I'm doing something. How often is that our response to God? Hang on, God. I'm busy doing something right now. Maybe in a little bit. Then I'll do what you want me to do. Maybe in a few years I'll obey what you've asked me to do. I'm busy with my life now. Stop bothering me. Maybe when it's more convenient or I have a better handle on things, or I feel like I would know what I'm doing. Yet we can learn a very simple lesson from Simon's response. Verse 3, he just did it. Jesus asked him to do it, and he did it. That was it. We see no balking. We, so, we see no excuse making. We see no justification of what he's currently doing or a delayed response, he simply obeyed Jesus' request right then and there. Is there something God has been asking you to do? Maybe, it's, maybe he's been asking you over and over and over again for a long time now. Is there something you've been dragging your feet with without obeying God fully with it? Maybe he's been asking you for years, but it would be inconvenient or it would mess up your life plan or it would otherwise just be uncomfortable. I just don't want to do it. When God asks us to obey him, very often it goes against human reason. Very often it's inconvenient. Very often it goes counter the culture. Very often it's a leap of faith. Well, let me ask you a question. Isn't that what trusting God is all about in the first place? It's not about lining everything up so that you don't have to trust God. Then what reason do we have to trust Him with anything? When has God ever said to His children, Trust me with this, and I may or may not let you down with it. When has He ever said that? Instead, He says in Proverbs, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding of the situation. What you think, you think and know about the situation and your understanding about it. Trusting God is never easy. It just isn't. That's what trusting God is about. It's never easy. It's downright scary giving, you up, giving up your mirage of control, because that's really what it is. It's just a mirage. Giving up your mirage of control and giving it up to God. But when you were a kid and your parent took you by the hand across the street, think back to when you were a little kid and your parent took your hand across the street with you. Did the thought ever pass through your mind, boy, I hope mom and dad don't throw me in front of the next passing car. That thought never occurred to you when you were a kid, right? 
But yet, that's how we often view God, our Heavenly Father, with His control over our lives. Boy, if I trust God with this, I hope He doesn't throw me in front of an oncoming bus. We've made a disconnect where there never should have been one. Yet in our American culture, we set everything up so that we don't have to trust God. We plan everything out and try to cover all of our bases so that when God asks us to trust Him with something, the request seems to come out of nowhere and completely shake our world. I didn't see that coming. The second part of that well-known proverb gives us the key to living for eternity in our trust of God. Seek His will in all that you do, and he will show you which path to take. He'll show you. That means financially. That means with your family, your future, your body, and your material possessions in all your ways. Seek his will in all that you do, and he will show you which path to take. So we looked at the request. A seemingly bizarre request Jesus has for Simon. Next, we're going to get to even more of a bizarre request. Now we're coming to the ridiculous. This just gets out of hand now. Next, Jesus says something that apparently sounds a little ridiculous to Simon. Verse 4. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Jesus has a plan. But this is why it sounds ridiculous to Simon. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. We have to remember that this is the Middle East, right? So during the day, fish would swim farther down to the cooler water. Because of this, fishermen usually fished at night when the fish were usually closer to the surface of the water. That's why Simon Peter makes that comment in the first part of verse 5. But these four fishermen weren't successful the entire night. You notice that? We worked all night and we caught nothing. Not even a little sunfish. That was the only thing I used to be able to catch when I was a kid. Those of you who, who fish know what I'm talking about. We caught nothing. Nothing. Coincidence that they caught nothing? That it was such a frustrating situation? Simon was an experienced fisherman. He knew where to go. He knew what to do. But even he and his partners weren't able to catch any fish. And I'm sure the thought passed through his mind. How could Jesus know more than him? Simon Peter could have said the begin, at, the, at the beginning part of verse 5, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, Period. Left it at that. He knew that he knew what he was doing. He could have taken that as an opportunity. Jesus, sit down. Let me lecture you on the proper strategies of fishing. But he didn't. Simon set that position of superiority, or in, uh, thinking himself superior, aside and gave Jesus this response, second part of verse 5. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. 
Something God asks us to some some things God asks us to do will not make any human sense. It may even take our pride down a notch. Which in reality is always a good thing, right? <laughs> our response to whatever God tells us to do has to be because you say so, I will obey you. Because you say so, I will do it. At this point, we don't know what exactly happened. Because the other boat was on shore at the beginning of this passage, maybe Simon's partners, James and John, rowed the other boat out with the nets. The Gospel of Mark notes that Andrew was with Simon when Jesus called him to be his disciples. So either that was a previous time and they didn't follow him until now, or Andrew is with Simon here, but Luke doesn't record it. Whatever exactly happened, what happens next is astonishing. Verse 6. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. The unbelievable happens. Just like they will experience at the wedding at Cana, Jesus doesn't just prove his deity with a miracle. He overwhelms everyone with his miracle. The wine out of water was the best the head waiter had ever tasted, and the catch Jesus gave to Simon was so astronomical, his nets began to rip apart. Think of the astronomical amount of fish it would take to do that. In fact, verse 7, So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats with fish so that they began to sink. It was customary for fishing families to go into business with each other, to share the expenses of the equipment, and to split the profits. Simon and Andrew are apparently in business with the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and Simon motions over to them to help them pull up the catch. And here's the ironic thing. Before, the concern was that the four of them had been exhaustingly and frustratingly fishing all night and caught nothing. No income for that day. Caught nothing. Now the concern is that they have way too much fish, and they're worried that if they're going to be able to make it back to the shore or not now. This is what this ironic development shows us. Even when God provides for you, that doesn't mean you can stop trusting him then. Thanks, God, for providing me, providing for me now. Now I'm going to try to handle the next thing on my own. It doesn't mean that you can stop trusting him because everything is seemingly good at that point. It means that you have to trust him all the more now. He's proven that you have to trust him, so you have to trust him even more. We looked at the request. We looked at the ridiculous. Thirdly, we're going to look at the response. Simon's response to all of this is a curious one. Verse 8, But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. I don't think you'd say that to just a random person that you're an acquaintance with. Get away from me, I'm a sinful person. The Greek word for Lord here is kurios, which could either mean a term of human respect or sir, as, as we may use it today, or the divine Lord. 
While that word itself doesn't tell us how Simon viewed Jesus at this point, either as deity or simply with great respect, the words that follow do. When Simon says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, Simon is referencing an Old Testament passage that would have been well known by most Jewish people at that point. <clears throat> In Isaiah 6.5 we read, then he said, it's all over. The, the prophet Isaiah declares about his vision of Almighty God, then I said, it's all over, I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Does that look eerily similar to what Simon says in our passage this morning? Simon's response to Jesus' miracle? Absolutely. And in referencing this very same famous passage, Simon is equating Jesus with that same Lord of heaven's armies of heavenly forces by declaring that he is too sinful to be in God's presence. Simon's response is a passionate declaration of his faith. He rejoices in the divinity of the miracle and then has the horrific realization that he must die for seeing it, for being in the presence of Almighty God. This overwhelming emotion is captured for us in, verse, in verses 9 and 10. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. It's translated amazed or amazement or astonished, but a more accurate word from the Greek thombos would be filled with terror. They didn't just feel like they were at a magic show. Oh, look at that. They were filled with terror. These guys were thinking that they had no idea what they had gotten themselves into, and they were literally terrified. It was beyond belief. If Jesus could do this miracle, what else was this guy capable of? They were filled with terror at the same realization the prophet Isaiah had hundreds of years before. That if they were in the presence of Almighty God and the incarnation of God, their very lives were at stake. This precipitates Jesus' response, verse, the second part of verse 10. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. Jesus knows that these fishermen's limited human minds were just rattled like nothing else. They were absolutely terrified. So he not only soothes them with the phrase, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, but now gives the purpose behind this entire experience. He tells them, do you see all the fish I just used you to catch. You're wondering if you can even make it back to shore now. Do you see the amount of fish I just used you to catch? Not only will I do this again through you, but this time it will be human souls when that happens. Jesus got their attention, I would say, wouldn't you? And did indeed fill them with terror, but it all had a purpose because it got their attention like nothing else would have. 
What else would have driven all four of these guys to give up their entire livelihood to follow Jesus and participate in his ministry over the next three years? Because that's what we find out, the last, the last verse of our passage. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Jesus' prophetic declaration, illustrated by the astronomical amount of fish caught, would be fulfilled in only a few years after this experience. It will only be a few years later when Simon Peter, this same guy, will stand up in front of a giant crowd of people through the power of the Holy Spirit and catch 3,000 souls in one day for the kingdom of God. I'd say that's an astronomical catch, wouldn't you? Jesus' words are a prophetic statement, but it's also a calling. Will you give up your earthly means of provision and the life that you have now to follow someone who requires complete trust in in order to follow? These four fishermen's ultimate response is astounding in and of itself. Again, verse 11, when they had brought their boats to land, all we have is a response. When they brought their boats to land, they left everything, everything, and followed him. As soon as they brought the boats back up, they left them. They left everything behind. Being in the fishing business at this point was a lucrative position. This wasn't a bottom-of-the-barrel position. This was a lucrative position. And you very often enjoyed a higher level of living than other people at that time period. And yet, what did they do? They gave that up. Not only that, but who knew if you would be able to reclaim your equipment if things fell through with following Jesus? They had no plan B. They had no backup plan. They had no clue if they would be able to get all their equipment back if this whole trusting Jesus thing didn't actually work out. They just left everything through, through all human wisdom to the wind and simply trusted this Jesus who they knew to be almighty God in the flesh. This experience must create an unrest within us. If we've grown too complacent in this world, it must create an unrest in us. If you know that God wants you to do something, whether in obeying one of his commandments or going down a certain life path, what lack of trust is stopping you from following through with that? Is it because a part of you doesn't believe that God that if God called you to obey him and follow him in a certain very difficult area, that he also wouldn't provide the means necessary to do exactly that? Peter, Andrew, James, and John were not supermen. They were people just like you and me. But they allowed themselves to have the simple faith that if they stepped out in faith, to obey the call that Jesus was issuing to them, that God was big enough to provide everything they needed in order to do so. It was a sacrificial obedience. It was a very difficult obedience. But it was a simple obedience. And because of that, 
Three out of the four of these guys, Peter, James, and John, were able to have experiences with Jesus that no one else on the face of the planet ever experienced. The fact that this story centers around Simon Peter gives us a whole lot of hope. Here's why. Think about it. Other than Judas Iscariot, if you had to pick one of Jesus' disciples who kept messing up time and time again, who would it be? Peter. Simon. Who was the one that Jesus had to outright rebuke? Peter. Who was the one who acted rashly and chopped off the soldier servant's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane? Peter. Who was the one who denied knowing Jesus three times when Jesus was arrested? Peter. Who said to Jesus, don't wash my feet, Jesus? And then Jesus said, I have to wash your feet or you have no part in the kingdom of, of heaven. Then he said, well, if that's the case, wash my whole body from head to toe. He still didn't get it. Peter. Who was the one who Jesus pointed at and said, get behind me, Satan? Peter. And yet, who was one of the first people on earth to declare his faith in Jesus as God? We have it right here, what we just read. Peter. Who was the one who was part of Jesus' inner circle of most trusted people on earth? Peter. Who, other than Paul, is the next one to come to mind who turned the world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Peter. And it all started with Peter's simple faith in Jesus. Simple faith is difficult. I'm not going to beat around the bush. It's difficult. But it sends us down the path of having experiences with God that are unexplainable and breathtaking. It leads us down the path of having God reveal himself in ways that not every believer experiences. It allows God to use us in powerful and indescribable ways. These four guys, because of their simple faith, were part of a small group of people who turned the world upside down. What will God do with your simple faith? Imagine what he can do and will do with each and every one of our simple faith. Peter's story gives each and every one of us the hope that God has an awesome purpose for each and every one of us, an awesome purpose for us for his kingdom. None of us is too far gone. None of us is past getting our lives right with God in every area of our lives. God can and will use each and every one of us to turn our worlds upside down with the message of Jesus' death and resurrection. Not only does simple faith and trust in God give us awesome opportunities to be grown and be used by Him, but it gives us simple freedom. It gives us the freedom to know that God is always in control. Nothing takes Him by surprise. And if we take steps of faith to obey Him in simple obedience, He will use us in incredible ways. Let us be a people that trusts God completely because the Bible tells us to. Simple faith. Because the Bible tells us that we can and have and will have the peace that comes with simply trusting God. 
Not a worry-free, problem-free life, but peace even when things don't make any sense. Let us share that freedom of trusting God with others, leading them to follow the one that we follow, the one who promises us that he will never leave us, nor will he ever forsake us. Let our Lord, our Master, use us to turn the world upside down through simple trust, obedience, and faith. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account of your experience with Simon Peter. We thank you for the example that his response gives to us. Simple obedience will unlock doors that you will reveal yourself to us, grow us in incredible ways, and use us to turn this world upside down. Lord, give us the strength and the power to obey you, to obey your commands in every area of our lives, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's inconvenient, even when it's incredibly difficult, because it's what you've called us to do. Lord, knowing that we trust you to provide for us as we obey you. And we're excited to see what unbelievable ways you will use us as we step out in faith to obey you and trust you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.